Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Who is God? And so this morning, God is sovereign. We are so glad to welcome each of you into the house of the Lord. What a wonderful thing to see the church growing. And for those of you online, we love you. And we can't wait for you to join with us. And it is a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. Now, when we come to a subject such as the attributes of God, it sounds awfully theological. I mean, big old words, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, the self-existence of God. And last week we talked about the sufficiency of God. Now, at first mention, you might think, well, sovereignty, really? I need something to get me through this week. I don't know that I need some vague, uh, off-in-the-blue theological concept. I need to balance my checkbook. Well, I will tell you, folks, that's why you need this message, because uh, sovereignty really touches every part of our life. For example, uh, how many of you would be willing to say, at least sometime this past week, I prayed. I actually, I talked to the Lord, whether it be silent or out loud, I prayed. Would you raise your hand, young and old? All right, that's just about everybody. A few of you backslidden folks didn't raise your hand, but uh, <laughs> no, I know, you're just kind of checking me out here. Well, I know you don't want to say it because you know I'm going to trick you or something, but uh, the fact is, if you prayed, then you believe in God's sovereignty. You believe that because he is a reigning God, he can change things. Otherwise, why pray? If we don't believe in sovereignty, why pray? How many of you believe that the future for a Christian is bright? You believe that? Raise your hand. You believe that? All right, then. You believe in the sovereignty of God. Because if God is sovereign and if he rejoices in the prosperity of his saints, and if he has written our name in the Lamb's Book of Life, if he has a future for us, then that means he can do something about it. The word sovereign has really the definition right in it, reign. God is reigning. It is used as a noun in the sense that he is king, it is also used as a verb in the sense that he can make things happen. To say that God is sovereign is to say, and these are good things to write down, God is in charge of the entire universe all the time. Amen. There you go. To say that God is sovereign is to say that God is in charge of all the universe at all the time. One particular confession of faith states it this way, he ordains whatever comes to pass. He ordains, now that's a very good term. He didn't maybe cause it in the sense, let's say, of sin, but he ordains it, he overrules it, God uses it. So we're gonna talk today about sovereignty, what it is, and what it is not, in fact, this is such a big, vital, important, and sadly misunderstood topic. The Lord willing, we're going to take two Sundays. Now, actually, next Sunday, you're going to be uh, just so blessed as we're going to hear Pastor Mike Robinette as he's going to preach to us in the morning. We uh, traditionally have him preach after vacation Bible school, and so... We're going to keep up with that this year. And then, uh, so the Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll have part B of this message. There's a story told of a group of theologians. 
And they were discussing sovereignty and free will. But as you might imagine, those two topics generated a lot of heat. So the group broke up into two opposing factions. One man looking at the sovereignty group, one man looking at the free will group, tried to decide which to join. So he stood for a moment and finally he decided. He said, I'm gonna join that sovereignty group. They seemed like they got it together. So he walked over to that group and joined them and they said, who sent you here? He said, no one sent me. I came of my own free will. Free will, they said, you can't join us. Get out of here, go to that other group. So he said, okay. So he went to the other group and then someone asked him, well, when did you choose to join us? He said, well, I really didn't choose. I was sent here by the other group. They said, sent here? You can't join us unless you came of your own free will. <laughs> now, folks, that's a humorous way, but frankly, it is crazy how the groups seem to divide. Maybe that's why author Norman Geisler wrote a classic book on this glorious, really glorious tension, and he entitled it Chosen But Free, a very clean way of describing really the way sovereignty works. And so this morning, we're going to talk about God is sovereign. Listen, please, don't let your mind go to the things of the week or the things that are coming. Just drink it in for a few moments. We don't get a chance to be together, and for those of you that have taking your time to be online, don't go in there and get your coffee. And don't go get your drink for sure, that is alcohol. I mean, come on now, let's watch, stick here, all right? All right, let's all bow our heads for prayer. Now, Father, we love you. So grateful that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, right in the book. Written it down, it's never changed. Thank you that we have that. Now, Lord, give us your wonderful teaching this morning. Holy Spirit, bring it to our spirit. Convict us and change us. Mold us today. Amen. Now, let's begin by acknowledging that the topic of sovereignty is a Bible doctrine. Being a Bible doctrine... There are at least five ways I think we could describe this particular doctrine. First of all, it is a confronting doctrine. You will hear precious few sermons on the sovereignty of God because the sovereignty of God comes across pretty stout, you know, kind of straightforward. And it flies in the face of much of the popular and senseless self-esteem psychobabble that's out there today. Amen. Now, I'm not saying self-acceptance, which is biblical and vital to know that i am been made by God and accepting ourselves the way God has made us and what we have in life, that's godly. But this self-esteem basic uh, cult almost that's out there, I'm referring to that constant anti-bullying, anti-shaming, liberal tagline that we're hearing so much. And frankly, it is seeped into the modern church all too much. And so when you talk about the sovereignty of God, we get our eyes off of ourselves, and we realize, hey, God is at work. And so it is a confronting doctrine. Second of all, it is a humbling doctrine to talk about. It's hard to really put our hand on it, our finger on it, but to be able to say, God is God, and I'm not, because most of us kind of have the idea that I'm, you know, the author of my life, and, you know, I'm the pilot of my own ship, and we really don't like the idea of humbling ourselves before God. Many years ago, before we actually started work on this campus about 20 years ago, we had a Saturday night men's prayer meeting, and it was absolutely awesome. We didn't spend a real long time, but it wouldn't be uncommon to spend an hour, hour and a half, sometimes even a bit more. 
Well, when we began to do all the construction, we had to change that particular schedule. But uh, as you might imagine, Saturday night, 9 o'clock, could get a little bit tiresome. Well, we were praying one particular Saturday night, and uh, we hadn't heard from one brother. We had been praying and praying, and we kept wondering how come he never prayed. All of a sudden, out of the blue, he jumped up on his feet, and he said, Thank God for God! And out he walked. And uh, we were like, looked at each other. I had to admit, uh, we all started laughing. That was a good, that was a holy laughter, I would tell you that. But I will tell you, I have never forgotten that because that is about as simple, but it's about as profound as you can get. Thank God for God. You know, that's a good point to get to in life. And I think that's what sovereignty does. Sovereignty is a humbling doctrine because it just says, hey, that's way above my pay grade. Thank God for God. Thank God he's got it all under control. Number three, this doctrine is an encouraging doctrine. It reminds us of the bigness of our God. Hey, God's got this. Everything is under control. Nothing ever catches God off guard. He is never surprised, ever. You know, that's a great moment when we get to that place, like we sang a few moments ago. He reigns. Our God reigns over everything, everything in the universe. You will never have a small God again when you believe and you appropriate the doctrine of sovereignty. It is a confronting doctrine. It is. It's in your face. It is a humbling doctrine. It's an encouraging doctrine. And frankly, it's an intriguing doctrine. It is. It's a mystery. It really is a mystery. To reconcile the fact that God is sovereign, and yet mankind has choices, and that we are responsible for the choices we make, and will be held responsible for those choices, I mean, that's a... That's a challenging concept. It really is intriguing how God can get us to the point where we need to be according to his will and yet allow us a free choice. Pauline and I have been blessed to go on one cruise and we really enjoyed it. I don't know that we'll ever do it again, um, but uh, we enjoyed it. Now, when we got on that cruise, uh, we boarded on the ship and its destination was predetermined, not by us, but by certain authorities. They had certain ports of call, and we went there on that. Now, on board were all kinds of passengers. They, none of them, as far as I could see, were in shackles. None of them were in constraints. We were all free, pretty much, to move about the ship as much as we wanted. And uh, there was lots of places to go. You could work out, you could go up on the deck. You could uh, go way out in the front there, go in the back. You could go to the food place. A lot of us did that for sure. You could read. You could talk. You could laugh. You could sing. You could sleep. Pretty much you were free to do almost anything that you wanted to do. The strange thing was, though, while we were all free to do that, the ship was steadily taking us towards a predetermined port. The tension between the sovereignty of God getting us to a point and the responsibility and the free will of man, I think, is seen that illustration. It is intriguing doctrine. And then finally this morning, it is a liberating doctrine. Once you get it, once you get it, it's like, hallelujah, that's amazing. I get it. Human the people of this world will never intimidate you again. You'll be free, gloriously free from the fear of man. And that's one of our biggest problems. Jesus, during his wonderful ministry on earth in Luke chapter 12, he cautioned his co-laborers, his disciples. He said, my young brothers, watch out for a cowardice heart. Don't be a coward. Be a courageous Christian. And he told them this truth. Look at verse 4. And I say unto you, my friends, it's good to be the friend of Jesus, isn't it? Yeah. And when you're the friend of Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. 
Be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. That's it. You'd say, well, that's a lot. Well, for the Christian, really, I mean, our existence physically is just so minimal. You see, God, when he conceived us, he not only conceived a physical body, some little cells got together, but a never-dying, eternal soul was birthed. That soul lives forever. And so, they may take my body, but I promise you, they can't touch my soul. And that's what Jesus is saying. Once you get a grip on the whole big picture, he said, it will be an amazing truth to you. Now, let's begin our discourse with a few verses to remind us of the sovereignty of God. First of all, heaven is God's throne. We found that in Psalm 102. Now in Psalm 102, the penman is most likely, although it doesn't state it, is most likely David. It is thought by scholars that he was being verbally attacked. Have you been ever verbally attacked? Have you ever been, you know, like a People say things about you behind your back. And some people were doing some very underhanded things. So this, David was not happy. And what more, these people felt untouchable. As though they had complete impunity. They could do whatever they wanted to God's people and never be touched. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Don't ever even imagine that you're not going to have to pay now, it may not be this day, it may not be next week, but you are going to pay because there is a God in heaven who has a throne there. Look at verse 19 of Psalm 102. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth. Folks, that's pretty much a good understanding of the fact that God is sovereign. He is constantly aware. He is prompting people. He is proposing concepts. He is placing things into our life. Ideas. He's constantly moving things around. Everything is according to the counsel of his will for his glory. Let's go to another amazing passage. Daniel chapter 4. Now Daniel chapter 4 is an interesting chapter in that really the author of it is Nebuchadnezzar. Well, at least the words. But the Holy Spirit told Daniel to write down Nebuchadnezzar's words. And Nebuchadnezzar said some incredible things, really. And for the most part, they were God's truth. And so look at verse 35. Here is as true a word as you'll ever get. It's, it is complete compared with other verses. Verse 35. And all the inhabitants. So here's this pagan king. He said, I, you got my attention, Lord. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Nothing. Every administration, every kingdom, every uh, party, nothing. To God, nada. They are nothing. There's nothing to God. And he doeth according to his will. Wait, what? So there's countries, there's administrations, there's yeah, but the Bible says God does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand. God is unstoppable. Or anybody can say unto him, what doest thou? Nobody can touch or change God's plan. God's kingdom rules over all. Now, that's a big introduction, but this morning, let's get into the real meat of the message. God's sovereignty, number one, is real. It is very real. It is a real doctrine. Put it in your notebook. Put it in your heart and your mind. Folks, there is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as blind fate. In fact, Incredibly so, God even, the, the turning of a dice, as it were, the pulling uh, names out of a hat. Look at Proverbs 16. Solomon gets real earthy here. 
That's just where we live. We need things like that. Well, most of us are pretty basic people. And so if you want to know the extent of God's sovereignty, this ought to pretty much uh, show you some amazing things. Here in this verse, he talks about lots. Look at verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. Now we're not talking about a parcel of land. We're not talking about big lots, the store, you know. We're talking about, uh, basically, they had a way of drawing uh, things out of a hat, as it were, kind of the flipping of a coin. It's not gambling. In fact, even God even suggested. In fact, when they um, divided up the land among the people of Israel, they did it by pulling names out of a hat, basically, by lot, as it were. In fact, uh, God even says that using lots is actually a good thing sometimes. We used to do that with the kids a lot. Sometimes when it wasn't something, it was no moral issue or something, but you know, someone got to go, only one person got to go somewhere. So we'd have them cast lots, you know, get a number or pick a name, you know, something like that. But look at this verse. The lot is cast into the lap or into a hat. Everything's cast into a hat. Everything's put into a pot. But the whole disposing of it or the, the final decision is of the Lord. Even though we have a part throwing these names into a hat, into a pot, really how it comes out is God. God governs and guides everything, even down to the flip of a coin, basically. God's sovereignty is real. How far does it reach? First of all, it reaches to all places. It reaches to all places. In Jeremiah chapter 23, we see a wonderful Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. He started young. He did not want this particular job. It was not what you'd call his dream job. But he faithfully did what he was supposed to do. And he found himself addressing a nation that was hurtling like a runaway freight train towards the judgment of God. And rather than do the smart thing, and like so many of us humans, we just know better and don't do the smart thing. He said, why nation are you not repenting? Why are you not humbling yourself? Why are you just blowing off God and saying, I don't care what you say? Jeremiah said, if you think God's just gonna let you do what you want, if you think he's not watching, I'm telling you, you are uh, thinking something seriously wrong. Look what he says in verse 23. Am I a God? So Jeremiah is speaking for God. Am I a God at hand? You might imagine that you see me here and there. See me in the sky or the sun or whatever. Saith the Lord and not a God far off. He said, you have this concept of where God is. Maybe he's in the temple or he's over here, but... He said, verse 24, can any hide himself in secret places? Did I not see him? Saith the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth? Saith the Lord. Lots of people do some nasty things, but almost always they do those nasty things at nighttime. Now, why do people do that? It's kind of stupid, really. I mean, it's stupid to do them, but it's even more stupid, you think, in nighttime, because nobody can see me. Really? Nobody can see you at dark? Well, it's possible, I guess, that we might not be able to see you, but God fills the heaven and the earth. Scripture is clear. God's sovereignty reaches to all places. The prophet Jonah saw how far God's sovereignty reaches. Look at Jonah chapter 2 and verse number 6. He had been swallowed by a great fish. We imagine it was probably a whale. And I know people have laughed at Christians for years saying that, you know, whales can't swallow people. Well, guess what? A few months ago, a guy up there on the East Coast got swallowed, a diver got swallowed by a whale. And so don't tell me they can't be swallowed. Anyway, verse six, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. Isn't it? Wonderful when science catches up with the Bible. Oceanography tells us now that 
the beneath the seas are this whole world of mountains and trenches. The earth with her bars was about me forever. He said, I was down in the deeps in a big old fish. Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption. Oh, Lord, my God. He said, I'm telling you, even in the bottom of the ocean where all the valleys are, where I might imagine nobody was there, but you were there. You are God in the trenches of the ocean, and you are God in the space. God reaches all places. Number two, God's sovereignty reaches all persons. In Psalm 133, David used his national platform to remind his people, we need to start praising God for his blessings more. He said, and if you think that God's not interested in you, you need to know God has his eye on you specifically. Look at Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him. The eye of the Lord. One uh, brother told me, I've had one eye on you for years. And uh, I hadn't seen him for, I think it must have been almost 40 years. And uh, I was out and about, and he said, you're Tim Pollock. I said, how in the world? And then he told me his name. I said, man, how in the world? How did you know? He said, I've kept one eye on you for all these years. <laughs> He'd see me in the, maybe the newspaper or little emails or wherever, you know, I don't know. But uh, the eye of the Lord is upon you. He's got one eye and God only needs one eye to be on you for sure. Time and time again, folks, God, everything in my life is not a fluke. It's not just good fortune. It is God's sovereign grace. He's got his eye on you, especially as the verse says, if you purpose in your heart to fear God, God is working in your life. It may not always be like we like it to be. Look at 1 Kings chapter 17. Well, I'll just give it to you, the illustration. And you can look at it later on your own. But in Luke 17, verses 2 through 16, old fiery Elijah and crazy Jezze, she was one crazy queen, Queen Jezebel. And he was running for his life. Well, like most preachers, after a little while, they get hungry. I, about every 30 minutes, I'm hungry. And by the time I'm done preaching here, boy, I tell you what, I go home and I eat big time. But I will tell you that... God fed Elijah, this preacher. Of all things, he used a, a scavenger bird, a raven, a big old giant crow. By the way, a raven hardly will even feed its own young. They're just nasty birds. And yet God, of all things, in his sovereign wisdom, gets this nasty, dirty bird to bring Elijah his lunch. And I'm sure Elijah looked at that big old bird and he was... Not probably liking it, but thank God for that good angel food cake he was bringing him. And I'm telling you folks that God providentially in his own wisdom does whatever he wants. He's not only in all places, but he's with all people. Look in Matthew chapter 2. Well, just again, a good illustration. <laughs> Excuse me. In Matthew chapter 2, we have the mother of our Lord, Mary. Mary was blessed to have the privilege of giving birth to the uh, body of our Lord and Savior. He was incarnate through her body. She made the world rich through that birth. And yet personally, she was very poor. A poor, poor, sweet thing. Her and her husband, young couple, they didn't hardly have a thing. Well, they needed to go to Egypt to flee what was going on. And so what did God do? God brought these scientists, ones who were Bible-believing scientists, not always easy to find. He brought these scientists, sometimes called magi or magicians. And these uh, astronomers from the East came to where they were, and they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. People talk about that and all the symbolisms, and it is wonderful symbolisms. But folks, that was some pricey stuff. God provided for that family, who knows how many years, 
God provided by that single gift. God sovereignly, and by the way, they found them there in their home, brought them those gifts. God's sovereignty reaches to all places. God's sovereignty reaches to all people. And then God's sovereignty reaches to all proceedings. Everything is being guided by God. In Psalm 75, the great worship leader Asaph, he noticed something about God and he just had to give testimony. Look at verse number six. Promotion, I've noticed, comes neither from the east nor the west. Now, he was specifically saying it doesn't come from the eastern nations or from the western nations or from the southern nations, but God is the judge. He puts down one and sets up another. All the political shenanigans, all the ups and downs, one nation is up here one day, the next day the leader is gone or dead or whatever. All of that, God, it says, puts up one and puts down another. You'd say, well, I wonder why God didn't mention the north. He said, here the east and the west and the south. Why didn't God, uh, why didn't the Holy Spirit here say the north? Well, because uh, promotion doesn't come from the east or the west uh, or the south. Promotion comes from the north. Where does it come from? Well, Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful for any situation and every situation, the joy of the earth, Mount Zion, God's place on the sides of the north. They viewed heaven as being in the north, up, due north. Where are you going? Well, I'm going due north someday. That's heaven. The concept here is that God is overriding everything and any promotion that goes on in this world, any of the proceedings of this world, God's got a hand in it. Esther saw that in the book of Esther. It was by God's providence that she was brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. And so, folks, God's uh, sovereignty is over people, places, and proceedings. God's sovereignty is very real. But number two, and this is a strange point, but it needs to be talked about. And that is that God's sovereignty is resented. Now, not surprisingly, it's certainly an unpopular doctrine with socialist-leaning politicians. They do not like the idea that someone else is in control. To them, the government is to control everything. And we sadly have seen them try to do that recently. But God is in control. No government, no person, no king, nobody in the business world, no God is in control. And so the first resentment that I sense, and I've heard over the years, is that God is certainly not in any loss. That is, when something tragic happens, unfortunate happens, how could God be in that? Well, I, uh, first of all, want to just maybe call our attention to an illustration here. And that is that God uses different instruments to bring about His will, even though it may not be very fun or easy. Uh, years ago, I used to watch uh, the New Yankee Workshop once in a while on the PBS station. Man, I was just amazed by that fellow there. He'd make all kinds of things. He'd take us into his uh, work, wood shop there, and I mean, he had all kinds of tools. Amazing. Many of them were beautiful, well-known tools. Some of them were old, and they were all curved and hooky-looking and weird-looking and wild-looking. I mean, he had every tool known to man. But I tell you what, when he got done with what he was making, it was amazing. But he used every tool in his shop. And, of course, many of us could never afford any of those things, but some of them were rare, but he used everything. Now, folks, God uses all kinds of tools in his workshop to build a creation. Our Jewish carpenter, our divine Jewish carpenter, is shaping us, and he is molding us. You'd say, well, how could a loving God let this happen? Why, God, do I deserve this? And why is God abandoning me? He's not. He's just making a masterpiece. He is sawing, 
He is hammering. He's just working us over. Our Lord, in John chapter 11, towards the end of his earthly ministry, had some dear, dear friends he had, uh, whose brother had passed away. Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus. Just look at verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary that was anointed of the Lord with the anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister said unto him, saying, Lord, we behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. They, their brother was sick and he, uh, well, he died. Look at verse 4. Now this is where God's sovereignty comes in. Jesus heard that and he said, this sickness is not unto death now. Now Lazarus later did die and he was gone, but this time he was raised up. But notice what it said, for the glory of God. I gotta tell you, when they heard that, I'm sure they were all, they might even been a little offended. <clears throat> Excuse me? You let my brother die so that you could bring him back? I mean, what? What kind of a thing is that? But God said, look, this is going to be a signpost. This is going to be an amazing story. Trust me on this one. This is for the glory of God. Now, look at verse 15 of that same chapter. I'm actually glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you and us might believe God is doing something to produce faith. And so is God doing something in your life, a faith event? You know, many people have taken this book that we've put together, Building by Faith, and they've said, man, it's just amazing what God has done by faith. Yes, that's a faith event. And there was not some always easy times, but I will tell you, God brought us through that. And that's exactly what he's doing. You'd say, why is God doing that? Well, maybe we're a little too dependent on somebody. Maybe we take God for granted a little too much. And so God has to do what he has to do in order to build some good things in us. Now, there is another question, another statement that people say, and that is that God is not in liability. Now, I'm stretching the term liability here, but I would just say God is not in evil or God is not in bad things that happen. Now, Yes, uh, for sure, God never does evil. God never makes someone do evil. But in all honesty, we need to understand that God uses the evil that people do for his glory. And this is a truth right here that will just shake some people to their core. But turn with me, please, for a moment to Isaiah chapter 10. The prophet was predicting that God was going to allow a king by the name of Sennacherib. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, was going to come to Judah. He was going to put the rod on Judah's back, some little divine discipline. And that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 6. I will send him, Sennacherib, against a hypocritical nation. That's my people. Against the people of my wrath. Will I give him a charge? What? What? Sennacherib was told by God to go whip on Judah, yep, to take spoil, to take the prey, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But now look at this, look at verse 7. But, or how be it, strange enough, Sennacherib meaneth not so. Neither does his heart think that's what he's doing. In fact, if Sennacherib thought he was a vessel of the Lord, he would have said, I'm not going to do God's work. Let God do what he wants to do. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations. So God took Sennacherib's wicked concept of destroying a nation. God used it to chastise his people. God uses evil people to sometimes protect his people. And that's exactly what Habakkuk said. Habakkuk was a brilliant man, highly, highly educated. He was, a, he was an amazing biblical scholar. And Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 12, 
he and the whole book of Habakkuk is just basically conversations with him and God. He just, he was almost like a biblical philosopher. He was like saying, God, what in the world are you doing? Look at verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, mine holy one, shall we not die? Oh, Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. What? God ordained this on his people? Wow. God ordained it? And almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. God does what he does. He uses things. I had to work on a little piece of metal uh, the other day. and I don't do a lot of that. It seems like I always get all cut up and everything anymore. But I was hammering on that thing. I was sawing on that thing a little bit. I was filing on it. And there I was, saw the hammer, the file. But when I was done, well, that was a nice little piece of metal. And that's what God's using on us. And all of us have about a hard as head as a piece of metal. But God's using the hammer on us and he's using the saw on the pile. God was using Sennacherib. God used all these nations. But they were simply instruments in the hand of an almighty God. Now, I'm going to actually skip uh, Acts chapter 14 because uh, we're getting to the, close to the end of our time or a lot of time. And I want to talk about three clarifications on God's sovereignty and evil. You can look up, uh, by the way, uh, on your own time, Acts 14, 16, where it talks about that God uh, has, uh, God overlooks sin. He just uh, looks past it for a while, but not forever. He, he allows it. And that's the concept here. Now, there's no way to uh, talk about sovereignty without some evangelicals getting a little weird. You see, the Bible road is a straight road. Jesus said it's a straight, narrow road. But inevitably, some will get on that road and they'll, and there's a ditch on either side. And they'll fall off into the left ditch or they'll fall off into the right ditch. Folks, don't go too far to the left. Don't go too far to the right on this particular doctrine. Just stay with the Bible. Don't try to take it farther than it needs to be. Three clarifications. Number one. God's will is not always fulfilled. Now listen, understand, because God is sovereign, that doesn't mean that his perfect will is always done. For example, is blasphemy God's will? No. Is abuse God's will? No. Is, are these wicked doctrines we see out there? God's will? No. God gave man a free will. That's why it says in Revelation 22 and verse 17, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. We have a choice, whosoever. You can or you can't. The great fiery Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 said, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God himself is not willing that any should perish. But since God gave mankind a free will, some do perish. But it's not according to God's will. God's will is that they would be saved. Now, God uses however and whatever happens. God is no respect of persons. If a person goes to hell, it was not because God willed them to go to hell. God is not willing that any should go to hell. You'd say, well, well, that verse is not talking about everybody. That verse is talking about only the elect. God is not willing that the elect should perish. Well, now, wait a second here. If that's the case, then every one of those whosoever's in the Bible are garbage. The Bible says whosoever. It doesn't say just the elect. Let me clarify. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 is a verse used by some who have this concept. Look what it says. But we are bound to give thanks so all we to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And that's where some of these people stop. There it is. You were chosen to go to heaven. Others are chosen to go to hell. Well, let's finish the verse. Don't stop there. And that's what happens so often. 
God hath chosen you to salvation through, through what? Through the Holy Spirit of God's conviction, sanctification of the Spirit, and believing of the truth. We are chosen because the Holy Spirit convicts us and we respond to the gospel. No, the fact is, God never sovereignly chooses anybody to go to hell. It is his perfect will that we accept him, but God's perfect will is not always fulfilled. Number two, God's love is not always received. Some people respond to the love of God, some people don't. It's just like maybe you might reach out to somebody in love and you know, you just, the feelings, the reciprocal feelings not there. Well, you don't try to make them love you. God's the same way. God reaches out. Look at Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus, our Lord. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophets and stones which are sent unto thee. He's weeping over Jerusalem. How often would I? It's my will that you come to God. I would have gathered you together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. But you would not. Now, according to some people, that can't happen. Because if God wants people to go to heaven, they go to heaven. Folks, God wants people to go to heaven, but some don't want to. God wants to love everybody, but some people reject God's love. And I'll tell you how far this goes. And this, I can't even imagine. This past week, uh, one of our precious young couples, uh, Hannah and Sam Brum, had a beautiful, little, beautiful baby boy, Silas. <laughs> beautiful little boy. There are those out there who say this, that God conceives a child. He has them born into this world so he can send them to hell because he does not love them. That's what some in this crazy world in the evangelical thing. I'm telling you folks, and that's crazy. I reject that absolutely 110%. That is craziness. Now they misinterpret Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, it says in verse 13, I believe it is, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And they say, there it is. While Jacob and Esau were in the womb, God made his sovereign love choice. That is about as stupid an understanding of that verse as I could ever imagine. First of all, he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking, he's talking about the nations that followed Esau. God, by his sovereign foreknowledge, knew who would accept him and who wouldn't. He has ordained Israel to be blessed of God. But even Israel, unless they chose, wouldn't get that blessing. Look at verse 31. But Israel, Jacob, see, that's the explanation. We're talking about Israel. Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained unto the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith. They didn't have faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And they stumbled at that, it says. That's where we see, folks, nobody is hated by God. God loves everybody. And he loves everybody. God so loved the world. Now finally, God's truth is not always accepted. Some have this fatalistic idea that people are unable to be saved because they're dead in trespasses and sins. Now that's the craziest thing I ever heard. They are taking the concept of a person being dead, so dead people can't hear. The Bible is not saying that they're dead physically. He's talking about their spiritual death. And they very definitely can still hear. Look what it says in Romans 1 and verse 20. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. They're understood by those things that are made. Verse 21. When they knew God. Does that sound like they couldn't understand God? No. Unsaved people can clearly understand and know God. How else can God be justified at sending a person to hell if it's not because they knew the truth, but they rejected it? Like Mark Twain said, 
It's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the things I do understand that bother me. And so the unsaved world, folks, I tell you what, it's not that they can't understand. It's that they won't. Folks, I promise you, being spiritually dead doesn't mean you are unable to be saved. Thank God for John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. While I am lost, God will give me power if I'm willing to receive it. God gives me the power to believe on him. That's the amazing truth of God's word. I close with this illustration. 19th century successful Christian attorney in the city of Chicago was a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford had a beautiful family. Four wonderful daughters, tragically. All four daughters died in a shipwreck crossing the Atlantic. Unbelievable. Broken broken, broken man. Can you imagine? Four beautiful daughters all at once. He was as broken as a man as you can find. He was a wonderful Christian. He later put words down on paper that have become perhaps the most inspirational hymn of all the hymns. I'd like to ask our worship team if you would begin to make your way up here because we're going to sing it. When sorrows like sea bills roll, you have still regarded my helpless estate. And then the famous words, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford said, I am as broken of a man as you can find. I cannot understand or trace the hand of God but I trust the heart of God. It's not well with my body. It's not well with my family. It's not well with my heart in the sense that these are my daughters, but it's well with my soul. I trust a sovereign God. I know he loves me. And folks, God loves you. For those of you that are watching, God loves you. You better believe he does. And there is nothing that happens in your life that God himself has not got his hand on and some way will use it for his honor and glory. Let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer. If you would. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at the Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.